0: got a Bible with you. Uh, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be picking it up this morning as we continue um, our series walking through the book of Acts. In Acts 9, what we're going to be looking at today is the story of a guy named Saul. If you're uh, familiar with the New Testament, he also went by the name Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul, or Saul was the Hebrew name, Paul was his Roman name. So Saul, Paul, that is talking about the same guy. But we were introduced to Saul back a couple weeks ago in chapter 7 and 8 when we saw the execution of this Christian named Stephen. Um, Stephen was, was unjustly executed. He was murdered as a result of the fact that he followed Jesus. And what it told us in chapter 7 and 8 was that this guy Saul was there overseeing the execution. Saul was in full agreement with the murder of this Christian named Stephen. So we're going to kind of dig back into Saul's story in chapter 9. So this is what it says starting in verse 1. We'll just get right into it. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way there. The way was kind of what they called those early Christians. It said he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. All right, so here's what you need to know about this guy, Saul. Saul was an incredibly religious man. He was a member of the religious group called the Pharisees. So he's a guy who has been um, just a devout, devout religious man his entire life. And like most of the other religious leaders in his day, um, he thought that Jesus was a fraud. He believed that Jesus was this false prophet who had committed blasphemy against God. So that's kind of Paul's understanding. That's Paul's perspective of Jesus, that that when Jesus died on the cross, he was rightly dying because he blasphemed God. That was Paul's belief. Now, the other thing about Paul was that even though he was a devoutly religious man, he was not a pluralist. And what I mean by that is that Paul did not believe in the value of freedom of religion. So so Paul wasn't this guy who said, you know what, Um, these people who follow Jesus, my beliefs are different than their beliefs, but you know what, everyone's entitled to believe what they want to believe, so just like I am legally allowed to follow my faith and believe what I want to believe religiously, they should be allowed to follow their own faith and believe what they want to be in regards to religion. Paul didn't think that. Paul was basically a religious extremist. He was a guy who wanted to wipe anyone whose faith was different than his faith off the face of the earth. He wanted to rid the world of people who followed Jesus, people who were part of the Christian faith. And so what's happening here is, remember, back in chapter 8, after the death of that guy Stephen, it says that persecution began to spread throughout the church in Jerusalem. So after the death of Stephen, Christians who lived in Jerusalem, they started to be targeted for arrest or attack. And so because of that, those Christians who lived in Jerusalem, they were forced to flee basically as religious refugees. They were forced to leave Jerusalem and go to other parts of the world in order to remain safe. And so here in chapter nine, what happens, it starts off as Saul, he goes to the high priest, he goes to the religious leaders, and he basically asks for arrest warrants for those Christians who have fled Jerusalem. He asks for arrest warrants that he can then take around the world, track down these other Christians so that he can arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem in chains to throw them in jail or have them killed. And it says he didn't discriminate men or women, young or old, he didn't care. He wanted to track down anyone who followed Jesus and arrest them so he could rid the world of Jesus's followers. So this is a man who hates Jesus and he hates the followers of Jesus. So he's on his way to one of these towns, a town called Damascus, to track down any Christians there so he can arrest them. And this is what happens. It says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, again, this mission to hunt down Christians, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, Paul is on his way, again, to remember, he's on his way to arrest Christians, And as he is on his way to arrest Christian, he himself, he is arrested by this blinding light as the resurrected Jesus appears to him. Again, you've got to understand, in in Paul's journey, in his life, up until this point in time, he still would have believed that Jesus was dead, right? He he was around Jerusalem. He certainly would have heard of the death of this self-proclaimed prophet named Jesus. He knew that Jesus had died on a Roman cross, And up until now, Paul believed that Jesus was still dead, but now he encounters the glory of the resurrected Son of God, Jesus. And look at what Jesus says to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now that's important because Paul wasn't literally persecuting Jesus, was he? Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father. So Jesus wasn't being physically persecuted. It was the church that was being physically persecuted, but Jesus, notice how he identifies with his people. Right? It's his people who are being persecuted, and when he appears to Saul, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is identifying with his people. He is one with his people. That's why the New Testament tells us that the church is the bride of Christ, right? Jesus loves his church. Jesus identifies with his church. Jesus identifies with his people. Now, listen, I know that the church is just a mess, right? Any church is a mess because a church is filled with broken, sinful people. So we're all a mess, we don't have it all together. We screw up. We make mistakes. We, we hurt one another. No church is perfect, but what we see here is that Jesus still loves his church, right? You can clap for that. Come on. That's exciting. Jesus loves his church. The church is the bride of Christ. And so just as an aside, this isn't even where we're going today, but it's, it's really, really difficult to love Jesus but not love his church. It's hard to love Jesus, but not love what he loves. He identifies with his church. He says, the church is my bride. The church is being persecuted. He says to Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus goes on in verse six. He tells Paul, he says, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. It says, then the men who were with Saul stood speechless. For they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. And so Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. So Saul has this encounter with Jesus. Saul is blinded by the glory of Jesus. And whereas Saul expected to enter into Damascus as strong and proud and victorious, now he is led in humbled and blind. The glory of the Son of God has literally blinded him. So Paul goes into Damascus, and on the other side of town, there's a follower of Jesus named Ananias. Ananias. And Jesus appears to Ananias in this vision and says, Ananias, there is this man on the other side of town. I have blinded him, but I want you to go and meet him, and I want you to pray for him because I'm going to restore his sight. By the way, his name is Saul. And so Ananias does what all of us would have done. He says, "Uh, Jesus, did I hear you say Saul? Because the rumors have spread. Ananias knows what Saul has done. He knows that he approved in the killing of Stephen. He knows that that Saul has these arrest warrants, and he's traveling around seeking to arrest and kill Christians. So Ananias is like, "Uh, uh, Jesus, I don't know about going and praying for this guy, Saul. Now, we need to be careful. We read this, like, don't, don't knock Ananias, and don't say, man, like, why couldn't Ananias just have more faith? Because Think about what Jesus is asking Ananias to do here. The equivalent for us, it would, this would be like if, you know, in October of 2001, like right after 9-11 happened, the next month, we're here on a Sunday morning worshiping, and like Jesus comes to you in a vision. And Jesus says to you, hey, um, I want you to get up and uh, walk on down the street to Taco Cabana down there. Because at Taco Cabana, there's a guy kind of sitting in the back corner, and I want you to go, and I want you to pray for him, and then I want you to bring him back to the church, and I want you to introduce him to everybody, because he's going to now be a member of the church. He's joining the church family. And so you're like, okay, yeah, cool, Jesus, I'll go do that. I'll walk down to Taco Cabana, I'll find this guy, and I'll bring him back to the church. I'm like, what's the name so I can go find him? And then Jesus like, yeah, his name's Osama Bin Laden. I'm like, what would you do? but but that, that's literally what Jesus is asking Ananias to do. He's like, hey, this, this man who hates Christians, this man who murdered Stephen, this man who is trying to find you to arrest you and kill you, yeah, he's one of ours now. I want you to go, and I want you to find him, and I want you to pray for him. That's what Jesus tells Ananias to do, but Ananias is understandably skeptical. But verse 15, it says, but Jesus said, go. He tells Ananias, go. Like, I'm not arguing with you. I didn't ask you. I'm telling you. He says, Ananias, go. He says, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, brother Saul, Isn't that beautiful? This man who was a murderer of Jesus, a murderer of Christians, because Jesus appeared to him, now he is a brother. And Ananias laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may gain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says, And instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. So again, what happens here is Saul, this literal religious terrorist who is seeking to rid the world of followers of Jesus, he himself becomes a follower of Jesus. He is converted. Now, if you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, then then you have been converted. If you are here and you are a follower of Jesus... The reality is, is that your conversion experience, you becoming a follower of Jesus, it it may not have been outwardly as dramatic as Saul's was. Meaning like your story is probably not that you were trying to arrest and murder Christians because you hated Jesus, and then as you're trying to do that, Jesus comes down from heaven, he knocks you off your horse, he blinds you, and he says, hey, knock it off, stop, and follow me. Right, your conversion experience may not have outwardly been that dramatic. However, what happened with Paul's conversion experience is the same thing that happened with your conversion experience and the same thing that happened with my conversion experience. The, 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 the kind of setting may not have been as dramatic, but the overall truth of our coming to faith in Jesus, the same was true for Paul, is true for us. So so two things we learn about our conversion experience from the conversion of Paul. And here's the first thing. This is so important that we never forget this. The first thing we see here is that conversion is a result of God's loving pursuit of us. So conversion, or in other words, our becoming a Christian, our coming to faith in Jesus, our being saved and brought into the family of God, it is a result of God's loving pursuit pursuit of us it's only a result of God lovingly pursuing us right? it is it is clear as you look at Paul's story here that God pursued Paul like it's easy to see that right again Jesus literally leaves heaven and comes back to earth he shows up he knocks Paul off his horse he blinds him he calls him by name And he audibly speaks to him and says, Paul, I'm Jesus, I'm alive, you've gotten this thing all wrong. Right, if that's not Jesus pursuing Paul, then I don't know what is. But see, as you read Paul's story, it becomes clear that it wasn't just this one moment that Jesus was pursuing Paul, that Jesus had been pursuing Paul repeatedly over time. See, Luke doesn't record it here in Acts 9, but later in Acts 26, when Luke is recording this speech that Paul gave when Paul was on trial, Paul says that there was something else that Jesus said to him here at this encounter. That when Jesus says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts 26, 14, Paul says that Jesus also said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That Jesus, when he appears to Saul, he says, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if you're like me, like you hear that and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Because I didn't know what that meant until I had to Google it and look it up. But what a goat is, is a goad was like this um, instrument that a farmer would use. It's basically a long stick with like a sharp point on the end. And if you're trying to get like a stubborn cow to do what you wanted it to do, you would kind of poke it. You would prod it on the leg to try to get it to go the direction that you wanted it to go. And so what Jesus is saying there to Saul, he's saying, Saul, I've been prodding at you. I've been poking at you. I've been trying to get your attention over and over and over again. But instead of listening, instead of going where I want you to go and doing what I want you to do, you keep kicking against me. You keep fighting back against me. See, what Jesus is saying is that that he's been pursuing Paul. He's been been prodding at the heart of Paul. See, apparently there were experiences that Paul had, that there were these questions that were raised in his mind as it related to the followers of Jesus that, that he just could not answer. And it was bothering him. It was troubling him. I think one of these is likely when, when Paul was there at the execution of Stephen and it said that Stephen's face um, shone like an angel. When Paul saw that, he witnessed that, and in, in his scientific, rational mind, he couldn't answer what happened there. I think when Paul saw the execution of Stephen and he saw how Stephen cried out with his last breath, Father, forgive those who are unjustly killing me. And when Paul saw how loving and how forgiving the followers of Jesus were, he he couldn't answer why that was. And those were times where Jesus was prodding at the heart of Paul. You see, Jesus had been continually pursuing Paul before and up till this moment where Jesus leaves heaven and physically appears to Paul in all of his resurrected glory. Jesus is clearly pursuing Paul. Now again, the reason that any of us come to faith in Jesus and experience conversion is because just like he did with Paul, Jesus pursues us. And again, it may look different. The circumstances may not be outwardly as dramatic as they were with Paul, but the reason any of us come to faith in Christ is because Christ first pursued us. Right, Jesus clearly says in the Gospels, he says, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws them. Right, Jesus says, we can't come to faith in him. We can't place our faith in him unless God the Father first draws us. And so what we see biblically is that in our sin, we're not seeking after God. Right, in our sinful nature, we don't desire the things of God. We are not interested in God. We're not looking for him. We're not seeking him out. God is the first actor in our conversion. Right, the process of our conversion was not that we first took a step toward God and then in response God took a step toward us. No, he was the first one to take a step to us. He first did that through sending his son Jesus to die and rise from death for our sin. And so, again, we've got to understand that, that both with Paul's just, just, just crazy, dramatic conversion experience, where, again, Jesus leaves heaven, blinds him, knocks him off his horse, both with Paul's conversion and with my conversion that was not so outwardly dramatic. Right? Just when I was seven years old at Westside Baptist Church at Iwana on a Wednesday night in Titusville, Florida, when I heard the gospel... And I realized that I was a sinner and I needed God's grace and I raised my hand and a counselor took me back into a room, explained the gospel with me and I prayed to receive Christ. Right? Both with Paul's dramatic conversion experience and with my not so dramatic conversion experience. What led to both of those was Jesus pursuing us. Right? Anyone who comes to faith in Christ, we come to faith in Christ because Jesus pursued us. And here's the best news of all. Just like Jesus pursued Paul 2,000 years ago, Jesus is still pursuing people today. And not just in some like global sense, like right here in this room and right here in our community, Jesus is still pursuing people today. He's still seeking after people to bring them back into relationship with the Father, Man, Wendy who's here, who just got baptized last Sunday, and who a couple weeks before that trusted in Christ for her salvation. When you talk to Wendy and you hear her story, what becomes evident, what becomes clear is that her story is not a story of her seeking after God, rather it was a story of God and his love and in his grace seeking after her. So check out this video, listen to her story in her own words.
1: When both of our kids attended the ELC, um, we had a ELC event in the sanctuary last year. And when I entered that sanctuary, um, just something moved in me. Um, And I really wanted to, um, I had a lot of questions. So it's been almost 40 years of a lot of moments that I think God has been calling to me. Sorry. No, it's okay. it's okay. My family has never been religious and we always had like a self belief ideology, but I knew there was something more.
2: Since we started actively coming to church and even before, but the moment we stepped into church on a Sunday morning here, every question that she's ever asked me has been answered almost the next day or the next Sunday between services either in our small group upstairs with our, our class or here with, with Brother John. Thank God that he is who he is because I have never seen someone pursued like I've seen her pursued.
1: It definitely, God God was like, you need to listen to me. And I was like, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm gonna listen. And just, he, he just came into my heart. Um, at the end of last month, um, during John's service. And I told Keith, I said, I I really, uh, I I believe in God. I believe he died for us, or Jesus died for us, um, so we can have eternal life with with him, Mm -hmm. so.
0: I, I love what Keith said there, where he said, I've never seen God pursue someone the way that he pursued Wendy. And again, when you talk to her and, and just hear her story, how there was all these questions she had, everything she asked, it, it was almost in like a weird coincidental sort of way that God would answer those questions almost immediately. And that's the loving grace of God pursuing us. Our God is a God who pursues us for relationship. I mean, think about this. God loves us so much that he comes after us. He seeks after us to bring us into relationship with him. Like, that's how much God the Father, the God of the universe loves you and I. He desires relationship with us. Like, like I think about it back when, you know, before Chris and I started dating, when, you know, we, we worked together. I'm like, man, this girl's awesome. Right? And so I started pursuing her. And I would do all sorts of like super cheesy, ridiculous stuff that I'm like embarrassed about now. Like, you know, like I would burn CDs for her with all these like cheesy kind of love songs that would try to like say like, hey girl, I'm kind of into you, right? Like I I hope this song communicates that point and gets it across. I pursued her, but why did I pursue her? Because I'm like, man, this girl's awesome. Like I want to spend every moment with her. I want to be with her. So I pursued her. Or think about this, that's what God the Father does for us. That's the love that God has for humanity. He pursues us for relationship. That's what he did with Paul, and that's what he does with you and I. Our coming to faith in Christ, our conversion is a result of God and his grace and sovereign mercy lovingly pursuing us. Now, here's the deal. That doesn't mean that we don't have to respond to his pursuit. We do have to respond to his loving pursuit. We respond in faith, and we respond in surrender. That's our responsibility. But what we learn from Paul's story is that we couldn't even respond if God did not first pursue us. God pursues us in his love. Love, what leads to Paul's just dramatic, life-changing conversion where he begins following Jesus is Jesus pursuing Paul. So we're reminded through his story that our conversion is a result of God's loving pursuit of us. Now, here's the second thing we see in Paul's story. It's that conversion results in commissioning. It's true of Paul and it's true of us. Our conversion results in us being commissioned, us being sent out to join Jesus in his work in the world. So look again at verse 15. Jesus here is talking to Ananias and it says, but the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as the people of Israel. Jesus says to Ananias, Ananias, don't be afraid of Saul because I am sending him out to take my message to the world. So Paul is saved, he is brought into relationship with God, and he is then commissioned, he is sent out to take the good news of the gospel to the world. And so again, we see here for us that when God and his love and his grace, when he pursues us by his grace, and then we respond in faith and surrender, our story doesn't end there, our story simply begins there. When we respond in faith and surrender, he then sends us out to take the good news of his love and mercy to the world. And here's the most beautiful thing I think we see in Paul's story. It's that when God converts you, he commissions you, he sends you out to be part of the work that he's doing in the world. But what we see clearly from Paul's story is that your past never disqualifies you from future service in God's kingdom. Right, whatever your past is, that does not disqualify you from God using you in the future. I think Satan, our enemy, one of the biggest lies that he wants us to believe is that all of our past, all of our sinfulness, all of our mistakes, all of our scripts, all of our failures are going to prevent us from God ever being able to use us in the future. I mean, but think about Paul's story. Paul's story. How easy would it have been for Paul to put his faith in Jesus, receive the forgiveness of God for his sin, but then think, okay, well, yeah, I, I, I'm forgiven, but man, like because of my past, because I murdered Christians, because I killed Stephen, because I threw Christians in jail, because of my past, God surely couldn't use me to do great things for His kingdom. And I, I, I was a religious extremist. I was a terrorist. Certainly, I'm not qualified to go. And take the gospel to others. My past is too dark. But instead of that, no, Jesus says, no, no, no. Saul is my chosen instrument to take the good news to the Gentiles. Regardless of your past. Regardless of your past. I don't care what's in it. Regardless of your past. When God saves you, he sends you out to be part of the work that he's doing in the world. Your past doesn't disqualify you from future service in the kingdom of God. I heard just in the last couple weeks just a beautiful example of this. I want you to watch this video and listen to the story of a guy named Brian Kelly. Brian is a part of our friends over of the Met Church in Tomball and he's a real life example of your past not disqualifying you from being used in the kingdom of God. So listen to this and check out Brian's story. <laughs> So I've been at the prison
2: unit for about a year, year and a half. Um, i had been in several fights, i had been in a ride on the wreck yard, and, I, and it's just the culture in there, that's what it's like. You have to always be on guard, you have to always rise up and meet a challenge. And, and it's difficult and hard and exhausting to live in that environment. Well, I grew up in a really small town in Kansas, about an hour outside of Kansas City. Um, my father divorced my mom when I was a toddler and took off and basically abandoned us. And uh, it was just my mom and I, I was her only child. Um, you know, I just grew up uh, gravitating to uh, my friends when I could and trying to learn what I could from their fathers. And so, you know, I grew up with this really perverted understanding of what being a man was. It's interesting because early on, I learned that I could get attention and praise from excelling in school and sports. And I did so in both. I don't know, I was always on student council. Um, I was typically one of the teacher's pets. It was right around 12, 13, when things are going really well, that I discovered alcohol. And those two things seemed to go together. You know, it's this social awakening, love, applause, you know, uh, affirmation and alcohol. And that made me really feel empowered. And so I just wanted that more and more and more. I gravitated to friends, partying, drinking, you know, not very many rules. You know, at 12, I started drinking. At 13, I smoked weed for the first time. You know, speed pills came after that. Um, I don't know, 16-ish probably, tried cocaine, acid, really anything that came along. Uh, I had a good experience, a fun experience with the early substances, and so I was wide open to anything that came along. So I would do anything, anything that came along. By the time I was graduating from high school, um, anything at all worked. Where did things go awry for me? it came during high school. There was a pregnancy involved, and then an abortion. And it was an overwhelming emotional tsunami that I could not handle, but I didn't have anywhere to go. And so without somebody to help me process that with, I turned to the only relief that I knew, and that was drugs and alcohol. It got down to the point where I went to go meet the guy I was getting my drugs from. I had no money, but I had to have the answer I had found to life. The only thing I had for leverage was a knife. And I took that with me with the intention of, I'm gonna take the dope and and use this as leverage and I'll deal with whatever comes after that later. And it just, didn't go the way I thought it was going to. It went way out of control and we ended up in a in a macabre dance of life and death that cost him his. you know, I went to prison with a life sentence. They sent me to the largest prison unit in Texas, about 4,000 men. Demographics there were 18 to 21 fighting like crazy. Um, you know, what I encountered was 4,000 men who viewed masculinity like I did, that you had to prove it, that you had to demand respect, that you had to, uh, live hard, speak hard, treat people hard. And, and that's, that's the view of masculinity in prison, demand respect. And so one day uh, a guy that I had met and befriended in there came to me and he said, Hey, I'd like you to go to a prison ministry called Kairos with me. It's coming up in a couple of months. And I said, Kairos, what's that? And he said, well, what it means for you is four days of home cooked meals. And I said, well, dude, sign me up because the food here is horrible. And I bonded with a, a Lutheran preacher who had went to Kansas University, so we, we bonded over that. And uh, to that point, I had never admitted to anybody that I was guilty of my crime. I would steadfastly denied it at a trial to my family, to my friends, even to the men in prison, I didn't tell the truth. And uh, being around those men of light couldn't carry that darkness anymore. It was just eating me alive. Before I could, before I could eat their food, I had to wash my blood-stained hands. And so I grabbed that Lutheran preacher by the arm and said, I need to talk to you. He said, okay. So we, he pulled me over to the side and I broke down and just started crying. And I told him everything about my crime, all the details. And he listened so patiently and so lovingly. And he let me regain composure. And he said, Brian, I am so honored that you would share something so big with me. I get that. And I want you to hear this. I forgive you. And I fell apart. I was snotting and hitching. And he let me get it together. And he said, although I forgive you, you need to ask God to forgive you and I promise you he will. All of a sudden the viewpoint changed. It was about how I could help others. Now I went back to school, earned a degree in psychology, I went to church, I went to Bible studies, I went to AA and I processed my life. I took multiple inventories, I lived transparently, I began to help men uh, learned how to read. I helped them as a college tutor. I became a, a peer educator that taught on social medical ills in prison. And I just started trying to give back. I started trying to help men in prison, not throw their life away like I had. I would end up doing um, a little over 20 years after that day. I ended up doing almost 22 total. About a month out when I started interviewing for jobs, PEP offered me a job. They offered me a job as a case manager, helping men, when they get out of prison, get on their feet. And I found that's exactly what I'd been doing for years on the inside, ministering to men, trying to make their experience better. Right at four years ago, um, I became CEO of an organization with 30 employees, 2,700 graduates, about 3,000 active volunteers. I get flown all over the country to talk about um, justice reform as, as a prisoner's advocate. I've been called to the White House twice. Uh, I get honorariums to go and speak. You know, Before prison, I couldn't tip a bartender enough to listen to what I had to say. And now I have people um, asking me to go speak uh, about things that I'm passionate about. May 28, 1994. In the chapel in Palestine, Texas, I got down on my knees and I said, God, my life's a wreck. It's a train wreck. It's broken pieces. Take the broken pieces of my life. I'm sorry that it's in such shambles. And it is amazing what God can do with broken pieces, He makes a masterpiece.
0: So here, in my opinion, is the coolest part of that story. That's pretty dang cool, all that right there. But that was recorded, I think, about a year or so ago. Um, Here's what's happened since then. Just about three weeks ago, Brian, in that video, was ordained as one of the new elders at the Met Church up in Tomball. (laughs) This man convicted to a life sentence in prison for murder to being an elder leading a church that is accomplishing the Great Commission here in our city. Do not ever, don't ever think for a second that that your past, that your failures, that your brokenness are ever a barrier to God being able to use you in the future. They are not. They weren't for Paul. They're not for Brian. And they are not for you or me. So as we close, just... Two responses. First of all, if you're here and you're already a follower of Christ, you have trusted in Jesus for salvation. Again, God's plan for your life is to use your life. He wants to use you for his glory. He wants to use you for his purposes. He wants to to raise you up and send you out so that you can share his love and his grace and his hope with others. Listen, if you're sitting here and and you're believing those lies from the enemy, then, well, I've got a bunch of baggage in my life. I've got a bunch of brokenness that I've walked through, and because of that, I really don't think that God could use me or that God would want to use me. If that's you, then your response today is to leave all that crap behind. Leave it here. Don't carry it anymore. When Jesus went to that cross, he took all of our sin onto his shoulders. Our past sin, our present sin, and our future sin. He took it all onto his shoulders, and he paid for it all. You don't need to keep carrying on your shoulders what Jesus took onto his. He was strong enough to pay for it. He was strong enough to deal with it. If God has forgiven you, then you can forgive you. Whatever brokenness, whatever shame, whatever struggles you still deal with, let them go. God has forgiven you, and he wants to use you, and he will use you. So if that's you, that's the first response. Second response, maybe if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus, laid everything at his feet, and believed that he died and rose from death for your sin, and given your life to him to follow him. Listen, if that's you you haven't done that yet, what Jesus did for Paul, he's doing for you. He's pursuing you. He's calling out to you. Like the reason that you are sitting here in this room today is because Jesus is pursuing you and he wants you to know that. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to know that he died for you, that he rose from death for you to bring you into relationship with God so that you could experience eternity with him forever. And so if you're not yet a Christian, you haven't yet come to that place where you put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus, he's pursuing you, he's calling you. All that's left for you to do today is respond to him, to surrender to him in faith, to call on his name for forgiveness and he will give it to you. So whatever it is that you need to do to respond to God today, and let me encourage you, don't leave here without responding in whatever way that God is calling you to today. Let me pray for us.